Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. We got a lot going on. Boy, there's a lot going on in the country. Oh, we got a lot yeah. to talk about, don't we? <laughs> a whole lot wow. to talk about. Things right. that happened and may not have happened. Things that happened and more interesting, what didn't happen. <laughs> exactly. But was said to have happened. happened. Yeah, exactly. Oh, you're getting to be a philosopher. You're hanging well, around with me too long. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, by the way, let me just confess a mistake I made on TV, and I've just been terrible. I feel like doing Catholic penance all week. I'm just going to get a, a hair shirt and just beat my breast. Okay. I was on TV, and they asked me about Andrew McCabe, and, you know, do you believe him about the 25th Amendment? I said, well, a guy who lies, how do you know what to believe? Right. I said, it's the old, uh, old Greek philosophy thing, the Theban liar. Okay. And the Theban liar says stands there, and you want to ask him a question. Before you get to him, as you're walking up to him, uh, you say, um, I have a question. He looks at you and says, all Thebans are liars. Okay. So now, now do you ask him a question? Right. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Except it's not Theban, it's Cretan. Oh, well, you don't have to do a ton of penance with that. Maybe just three Hail Marys. That's fine. And uh, our father in act of contrition? Yeah. Why not? Welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. <laughs> We're off and running this morning, Claude and I, Claude Jennings here producer and uh, a man of parts. We are taking a look at a serious look at existential threats to America. And I'm going to tell you what an existential threat to America is right now. Lying. Mm -hmm. Lying for political purposes. Right. And I'll take both sides here. Uh, I don't know if you saw the the, uh, situation in North Carolina where they're rerunning the race. Oh, right. Yep. For Congress. Mark Harris, Republican, supposedly defeated McCready, the uh, Democrat. Uh, but now they're going to have another whole primary and election because the argument is that the Republican here, you know, stacked the deck, fixed it, uh, tinkered with the system. And I, I don't know if it's true or not, but his son testified at a hearing saying, I told my dad not to do this. Okay. So, you know, we shall see. Mm-hmm. But lying in America uh, and its place in politics, we're going to talk about that and we'll be talking about it more. It's a threat to America. I don't mean hyperbole and exaggeration and Trump stuff and, and all that. Um, but when people are using absolute lies to advance themselves, mm-hmm. uh, we got to talk about whether it's Republican or Democrat or president or vice president or or Speaker of the House, whoever, we got to call them on it. Uh, we will discuss some aspects of the news of the day and what it means for you. Uh, today we're taking a look, of course, at the Jesse Smollett case. I'm not going to tell you everything. You've already heard. Mm -hmm. But Heather McDonald, who's been on this kind of thing for a long time, she wrote a great article in City Journal discussing the elite's need for this narrative about a hateful America. And now that it looks like the truth is out about this, it's interesting is that a lot of people are denying it. They're saying it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. True or not, the narrative is correct. And so let's push that. Right. What does that mean? (laughs) Uh, We'll also hear from Michael Anton. He's got a new book, The Flight 93 Election. He wrote the most important essay before uh, the 2016 election called the Flight 93 election. Uh, and uh, these are his reflections on why it mattered and what the situation is now. We'll talk to him about that. One of your favorites, Michael Anton, former National Security Advisor to the President. Um, I want to discuss a few things. First, we talked – did we talk last week a little bit about Kamala Harris and her marijuana thing? I think we did. We did, yeah. Joking around about it. Did you see what her father said? I uh, know. Her father, her father from Jamaica, she is half Jamaican, half Indian. Mm-hmm. Her mother's Indian, and her father's Jamaican. He was a Stanford professor of economics. He's emeritus professor of economics at Stanford. He heard her comments about marijuana, laughing and joking. To this, 
Donald Harris, Kamala Harris's father, said, My dear departed grandmothers, whose extraordinary legacy I described in a recent essay, as well as my deceased parents, must be turning in their grave right now Mm. to see their family's name, reputation, and proud Jamaican identity being connected in any way, jokingly or not, with the fraudulent stereotype of a pot-smoking joy seeker Mm. and in the pursuit of identity politics. Speaking for myself and my immediate Jamaican family, we wish to categorically dissociate ourselves from this travesty. It's pretty strong. Her comment about, well, you know, I'm, I'm half Jamaican. Mm-hmm. You know, half my family is Jamaican. Uh, and he is saying, uh, no, no way you're slandering a whole people here. And obviously the Stanford professor, old school, doesn't uh, isn't, mm-hmm. isn't into marijuana, mm-hmm. isn't into pot. But let's look at what she says when she says, well... You know, marijuana, how do you think I feel? I mean, half my family's Jamaican. Supposing Donald Trump had said, oh, "Oh, Jamaica, you know, well, that's just a bunch of pot-smoking ignoramuses. Of course, she's uh, smoked marijuana. She's half Jamaican. That's what they all do down there, Mm -hmm. which is just what she said. He would have been, you know. And he wouldn't have been able to say, oh, I was just joking. I know. He's never joking. Yeah. Not with the the media. I want to just point to uh, one other thing. Uh, we may want to talk about it more next week, Claude, but um, you remember, you may remember, you may not remember, uh, Claude, that I was the Secretary of Education. I do remember. Okay. Uh, there will be uh, an, an, an important announcement by the Secretary, the current Secretary, about uh, school choice next week. I just mentioned that. But apart from that, there is going to be released a study uh, on uh, teachers, elementary school teachers. The National Council on Teacher Quality will release a new report examining the astonishingly high numbers of elementary teacher candidates who fail their subject area licensing tests each year. Oh, uh, I've seen an embargoed copy of this report. I've heard about it. Uh, I haven't seen it. I've heard about an embargoed copy of this report, a fair chance. Listen to this. Only 38% of black teacher candidates and 57% of Hispanic teacher candidates pass the most widely used elementary content licensing test after multiple attempts. Oh. And 75% of whites. So you're talking about 50% overall, Mm -hmm. pretty much, of teacher uh, candidates, after taking the test multiple times, fail the content uh, test. It would, uh, it's extraordinary. Look, another thing, a tiny percentage of programs in schools of education require courses to ensure candidates gain foundational knowledge across science topics. 3%. Remember, in elementary school, you got to teach everything. Right. Right. Math, science, history, everything. Only a quarter of programs uh, in these uh, in these schools uh, require sufficient coursework in math uh, and history, geography, and literature absent. Low pass rates uh, on the elementary content licensing exams means poor teaching in the classroom. Gosh, no wonder people want choice and more options. Right. The person right. who's standing in front of the classroom may not know anything. Right. Yeah. Sending your kid there. But the odd thing is that if you go to a liberal arts college, a prestige college like Princeton or someplace, University of Pennsylvania, and you major in chemistry, and you are excellent in chemistry, when you graduate, you can't teach chemistry in a high school. Right. Because you don't have your certification. Mm-hmm. So it's often the case that people who know their subject can't teach. People who don't know the subject do teach. Mm. Not always. Right. But this is a real problem. And uh, we'll take a look at this report. Uh, it'll be out next week. We'll hear about it. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. All right, let's welcome Heather MacDonald. Heather is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal, one of the great journals in America. 
and the author of the best-selling book, The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. I wonder if that's appropriate for our time. Also a book called The War on Cops, which I want to bring into the discussion as well. You wrote on February 18th the Jussie Smollett case in which a young black gay actor has apparently concocted a tale being attacked by two white men wearing MAGA hats shouting anti-gay slurs is just the latest example of how desperately media elites want to confirm their favorite narrative about America. It's been a ton said about this. I want to go right to the next stage. I am reading now, maybe Heather, you will need to explain this to me. I am reading now that defenders of Jussie Smollett are saying well, he may not be telling the truth in this case, but the narrative is still true. Have you heard this? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, this is the usual response to hate crime hoaxes. There was one at, I believe, Columbia Ed School where a black professor purported that she'd been had a noose hanging outside of her office, which turned out not to be true. But that is the usual response. Uh, well, it could be true, so let's have another $100 million in spending on diversity bureaucrats or implicit bias training. Uh, St. Olaf College in Minnesota recently had a hate crime hoax. And again, the the people who are so deeply invested in the narrative of ubiquitous white racism uh, are not going to let a hoax stand in their way. They'll simply double down and say, yes, but this speaks to something deeper in, in American society. So these are literally unfalsifiable uh, hoaxes. Okay. So that is the force and power of the politics here right of the of the ideology that the fact the facts in the case don't matter what matters is that you're rightly disposed that you're yeah, thinking it, the it, right way yes um it 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 is a secular religion again okay. the facts don't matter confirmation don't matter it is a a priori belief and it is one that people's identities are invested in right so remember my isaiah berlin a priori beliefs are beliefs that cannot be refuted by any particular fact Right. Right. That's right. Okay. But now, why? How did we get there? Because this, it seems to me, takes us back to other discussions we have had about which you have written a lot over the years, which is, in many ways, the quote high culture, or at least the the high priests of the culture, uh, have 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 been saying for some time now that there really is no objective truth. Isn't that right? Doesn't that buttress this situation? Well. You know, I know that's a favorite conservative analysis of it is. our current situation, which is that it all comes out of relativism. That was certainly the position of Alan Bloom in the closing of the American mind. Yep. I, I look at the current situation, and I don't really see a relativism on the part of the left. I see a dogmatic certainty, okay. a, a, you know, again, a religious zeal, a crusading zeal that they know the truth about America, and that truth is that it is the source of all world oppression today. There's not not a trace of enlightenment skepticism, a willingness to consider the possibility of being wrong. Certainly they are absolute zealots in squelching any counter evidence or, or counter narratives. So I, I just, I, I'm not really sure, maybe okay. at its origins okay. this sprung out of that, but I don't really see that as the as the predominant characteristic of today's crusading leftists. Okay, because the absolutist ideology governs and the narrative governs, right? Whatever whatever the facts may be and and the facts can be ignored. 
Right. I mean, to that extent, if if they say, well, it, it it's true anyway, you can say that's relativist, but it, they still are going to insist that they have the unique control and 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 awareness of the defining truth about America. Okay, and 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 certainly to support your point. They would point to other facts, which they immediately do, which is, well, or at least they claim they're facts. Okay, maybe not here with Smollett, but this kind of thing is going on all the time. We've heard a lot of that. Is that true? I I don't think it's true. I think that there's been very few hate crime convictions. Uh, The definition of hate crimes, I think, is is fairly political. I think a lot of black-on-white violent street crime is probably driven in part by animosity that never gets classified as a hate crime. Uh, The data that the left points to showing a 17% increase in 2017 of reported hate crimes, that's 1,000 more compared to the previous year, bringing it up to about 7,000. That 1,000 additional reported hate crimes, and again, they could all be Jesse Smollett hoaxes, for all we know. Yeah, Uh, These are mere reports, but that 1,000 corresponds to the additional police agencies who participated in the FBI's reporting system, 1,000 additional agencies. So it's impossible to know whether that increase is real over the previous year or whether it's just a function of more reporting. In any case, though, uh, if we're talking 7,000, 6,000, it's, uh, it, it's minute. And, and again, nobody is corroborating whether those, those are uh, valid as well. And it's, it's also minute compared to the amount of actual crime that goes on and uh, that, that we should really be worrying about. Yeah, uh, Chief, by the way, let's talk about the Chief in Chicago, was pretty good, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, it's they were. it was obvious that the Chicago Police Department was as terrified and browbeaten by this narrative as anybody else. They held on for weeks uh, on to the possibility that this was real, even though the facts as reported simply didn't pass the laugh test. And it was only after a, a, a mounting evidence uh, that that this was completely staged were they willing to go out there and say, no, he's not a victim, he's actually a perpetrator. But yes, he was right to talk about the waste of resources. A local um, Chicago columnist, John Cass, wrote a very good uh, uh, column before this noting that the Chicago police had about 12 or 15 detectives working on this one case, which is far more than the department has the resources for, far more than is put on your average drive-by shooting. Again, just showing the pull of of elite narrative that somehow this alleged uh, attack is worth far more than some black kid's life that's been shot in a drive-by. We're talking to by Heather. another black. I mean, if the issue is, is by another black. Sure. We're talking to Heather MacDonald, uh, and she's the author of the best-selling The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. 
and also a book called The War on Cops. I'm going to stay with the cops for a minute. Don't get angry with me, but when I was sitting up to watch the press conference by the chief, I was very nervous about what would come out. Because of some a conversation you and I had about six months ago, I think it was about Chicago, a big report about the police and how they needed to be more sensitive to LGBTQ and so on. And I was worried that, because uh, you said a lot of departments have been taken over, that we were going to hear a lot of mush. But what we heard is pretty straightforward stuff. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, but that should be right. The consent decree that uh, the, unfortunately, Eddie Johnson voluntarily signed with the uh, Illinois Attorney General, it's about oh, well over 200 pages. It has long sections in retraining on LGBTQ terminology and not, you know, uh, what is the the phrase, uh, dead naming uh, LGBT people when he's, you know, this is a, a grotesque uh, waste of resources. Uh, so that may have contributed to their the Chicago Police Department's reluctance to walk this narrative back. But certainly once they had their facts lined up, uh, Johnson was, was uh, quite... Yeah. Uh, explicit about the fact that this was a hoax. Now, another sort of conventional safe stance to take in all of this is to say, and it's true up to a point, well, the problem with these hoaxes is that it uh, will breed skepticism towards all those victims of real hate crimes. And, And a lot of conservatives have been taking that position. And it's a safe harbor. Uh, But I would say the real problem with these hate uh, crime hoaxes is that they simply fuel the narrative, even after, as we said, even after they've been disproven. Uh, They play into this academically generated storyline that is completely false, but is breeding hatred and civil division in our society that racism is the predominant characteristic of of white Americans. I was reassured. I just want to stay with this for a minute because I was reassured to hear a chief talk like a police chief. I have a friend who's a, a chief executive of a police organization. I've been to a number of national meetings of chiefs, and I said to him the same thing I've said about school superintendents. I like school superintendents to sound like educators. Instead, they sound like sociologists and social workers. And a lot of the chiefs I've heard don't sound like cops. They sound like sensitivity trainers. But this was, maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but this was uh, this was reassuring, at least in, in this instance. Yeah, Johnson has been uh, strong in the past. As I say, I, I think it's unfortunate that he agreed to the consent decree, but um, yeah. he's been he's been pretty honest about the problems in the community. Much now of, of, of the following, what we see, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a CNN commentator from last night. Uh, well, maybe, maybe uh, what we're hearing about Jesse fabricating is true, but I want to see all the evidence because I'd like to point out all the evidence we have so far is from the police. And for a black person like me, that raises suspicion. How much, how much of this is going to be turned against the cops now? It's going to be cops versus black people, I guess. Well, I wouldn't put it past anybody because the line is is that the entire criminal justice system is racist. And so it won't be just the cops. It'll be the prosecutor. Now, yeah. the prosecutor, uh, you know, DA in, in Chicago is, is, is one of these criminal justice reform people. So uh, how, how strongly uh, the prosecutor will go forward, I don't know. But if, if that happens, that, again, will be 
can fit into a narrative of systemic bias. I suspect that what's going to happen is they'll just uh, walk silently away. I, I, I can't believe that they can maintain this this uh, commitment to the truth of this hoax for okay. indefinitely, but they'll just drop it and, and wait for the next one to come along. Okay, that, that's smart advice to them inside the, the folks who are saying keep the narrative, keep the narrative will be to walk away from this one because the facts are too too loud, too bright, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, I'm just curious. If you were uh, counsel to Jesse Smollett, right now they're saying he's sticking by his story, you know, and it's all true. What would you advise him to do? I heard the chief say yesterday, I think I may not have heard the whole thing, but I heard him say full penance or full restitution would be a full apology and an offer to pay uh, for all the expenses of all those detectives. Um, if you were advising him, what would you advise him? I know you don't want to advise him probably. I don't either. I don't want anything to do with the guy. But if you were advising him, what would you tell him to do? Uh, come clean. You know, okay. the, the idea, it's just, the human folly is just always stunning that people think that they can get away with things for this long, that he's, I don't know whether he's literally convinced himself about this or if he just thinks he's going to brazen it out. Uh, but yes, this is, this is not a man without resources. Uh, he, he, he was lucid enough to predict that if he got away with this thing and he would have the entire elite cheering him on, uh, he would get a salary increase because he would become uh, one of America's celebrity victims and would be on the talk show circuit, probably the lecture circuit in college campuses about homophobia in in the Trump era. Uh, Homophobia and, and racism. He's and racism. Double and billing. So he's got, but, you know, he makes probably 10,000, 20,000, I don't know, an episode. No, 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 no. Between 60 and 125, I heard this morning. Okay, so if he has been at all uh, sane in his husbanding of his resources, he has quite a nice nest egg that would allow him to be able to pay restitution to those for those man hours that were lost and in trying to track this thing down. Uh, and, you know, he, I don't know what explanation he could come up for for why he did this. Um, I, I think it was not just about wanting the salary increase. I think it's, it's also simply an ideological uh, escapade. You could, you could take the salary out yeah. because there's lots of yeah. people that have done these hoaxes without an obvious financial uh, reason to do so. And it is simply because they are so committed to the yeah. narrative that they want yeah. to light the, the match to the fire further. And my guess is that's also what was motivating him. Yeah. Uh, you know, talk about human folly and ideology. Remember a phrase, I'll, I'll get it a little wrong, but in graduate school, when I was studying philosophy from Hannah Arendt, who said there was no straitjacket quite as tight as that of ideology. It's tight and it controls and um, it makes the person who holds it feel totally uh, as if they're telling the truth. My brother, uh, Bob Bennett, who's a very famous lawyer, represented Bill Clinton, Casper Weinberger, others, has told me he has talked to senators, congressmen who he's represented, and he says, you talk and um, they, first they give you a campaign speech and then they say, I think everything will be fine. My people love me. And you say to the guy, there are phone records, sir. There are letters. There are emails. And they say, oh, really? 
um, you, you talked about human folly. That's what got me off on this. People just think, how the heck did he think he could get away with this? Because he almost did. Yeah, one, one despairs of reason. Now, obviously, we are all prone to that. And so I aspire to a state of of unblinkered skepticism, both towards my own failings and, and, and towards the rest of the world. And, you know, hope that I'm close to that. But, you know, it, it is hard. I'm, I'm enough of a product of, of 1970s deconstruction that I'm, I'm a little reluctant to say that I am in possession of the truth. Uh, and and everybody else is not because I I know that for me the biggest divide between conservatives and liberals is over the role of personal responsibility and behavior in explaining socioeconomic outcomes. A, yeah. a liberal is going to see uh, structural forces at work in the fact that we have differences in income, racial disparities, a conservative is going to say there are behavioral differences that are so vast, whether it's with regards to out-of-wedlock child-rearing, attitudes towards school, uh, willingness to do homework, stay in, in class, that those explain things. Now, a, a liberal would say that I am blind to those structural forces. How can you not see that it is preposterous to expect, say, black children to put in an effort at school like Asians do when they're living in an environment of, of structural inequalities. And so they would accuse me of being just as blind by my ideology as I would say they are blind to the fact that you can do a lot for yourself by acting responsibly and, and following a set of bourgeois values. So, again, both sides feel like they've got access to the truth and only the other side has blind spots, but I'm not willing to say that I, I don't have them myself. I know, I know, I know, I know. Best to approach your own uh, certainty about a situation with a little bit of doubt. What what happens next? And I, I I want to tell you two things that have already happened that caught my attention. Uh, and you don't have to comment on them, do so if you will, but comment on anything else. The, the first um, comment I heard from one of the senators running for president um, was, uh, this underscores the need to pass the anti-lynching bill. Um, not quite sure how that's a sequitur, how that follows. The second thing I noticed was that Kamala Harris went and had lunch with Al Sharpton, apparently, to seek what help, support, advice, endorsement. Wasn't Al Sharpton the original fraudster in this, about race, or one of the originals? Well, I mean, those are really remarkable uh, data points to just confirm the point we're making, which is that this is a narrative that is a tidal wave, it's a tsunami, it sweeps all in its path, and, and little pieces of flotsam, which we call facts, are, are submerged and, 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 and consumed in the mad rush to impugn our, our civilization. The very idea, even without Jesse Smollett, that there's a need for an anti-lynching bill is completely ludicrous. We do not have lynchings. This is purely virtue signaling about 
we are superior to those redneck MAGA hat-wearing Trump supporters that, in our view, are engaged in all these lynchings that we don't really get reported, but that we know they're out there. Uh, it's it's ridiculous. It's a complete waste of the Senate's energies. And, uh, yes, the fact that Sharpton has been washed clean in the eyes of the vast percentage of the mainstream media of his involvement in one of the or hoaxes, although there may have been some before then, I don't know, just shows again uh, that this is a narrative that is def- definitional, it gives meaning, it's it's existential, and uh, it is generated that the amount of activity that's going on every single day on a college campus to keep it going, the white privilege classes that are being offered across colleges across the country, the freshman orientations in white privilege and toxic masculinity. There is so much energy being generated, putting this into college students' heads who then graduate and take up places in in human resources departments, in corporations, in foundations, in the media, in Hollywood, in the entertainment industry, that uh, it's just not absent a willingness of more people to stand up and say there are alternative explanations to bias for the fact that we have yet to close the uh, gap between blacks and whites. Unless more people are willing to say that, the other side wins and this narrative remains the dominant one. I want to make a last comment and ask you to comment on it. Uh, We conclude our discussion with Heather MacDonald. And she's the author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Um, You made me think, as you always do, everything you say, but when you said you give some pause to your own reactions, too, that postmodernism has had that effect on you. I I do, too. And also, I have to say with some regret, I've given up certain practices. I was trained as a philosopher, Heather, and Socrates was my hero. And I remember the three conditions of good dialogue, intelligence, candor, and goodwill. Uh, candor, you know, about the facts, about the truth seems to, seems to be missing. But I remember it was a thing of mine all through my 20s and 30s to carry on ongoing dialogues, I hope they were, with very liberal friends and in hopes that, you know, people would change their minds. Ah, Jesse Smollett, I'll send this report to my liberal friend. That'll change his mind. It won't, will it? No, I, yeah. I. It, there is I no fact know. that will change his mind. I don't know, right. Yeah, and yeah, again, yeah. Just, to be, just to be ruthlessly even-handed, they would say that there's no facts that will change our minds. And we have certain constitutional predispositions, I think, to seeing the world as it is. What it takes to change somebody's mind ever, I'm not sure. Uh, it can't be that we're always in a stasis, that the the beliefs that we start out with remain permanent, because one does have to explain to a certain extent how do you come up with those beliefs in the first place. But it does look like any individual has a whole set of cognitive strategies yeah. to avoid uh, yeah. changing his ground beliefs. And so what the ultimate value is of rational discourse, I'm not sure. Yeah, because 
We are all tied very much uh, to certain perspectives. I, I mean, I can say that I, I have changed my political views enormously. I, I was a default liberal, which is what you are in this society, unless you think very hard about the assumptions that come at you. Um, and eventually doing reporting, doing on-the-ground reporting in welfare offices and homeless shelters and uh, observing what was happening to humanistic learning, uh, building on what I'd always had, which is a, a repugnance towards any challenge to meritocracy through the form of uh, racial preferences, that did change me, but in other things, maybe not. So it's it's a real mystery. Um and, you know, certainly the class, the the ancients had the whole art of rhetoric to try and persuade. I'm not sure if we went back and and, and read Cicero, if it, if it would help us make these arguments. But it doesn't seem like we're making a whole lot of progress right now, at least within the, at the, at the citadels of left-wing ideology, which again is the university. Yeah, I haven't heard a lot of. Gee, I used to think otherwise, but after having this debate with you, I changed my mind. Don't hear that a lot. And I guess, I guess when we talk to politics about politics, this is why the, the vote, the moderates' vote, is so important. Is that uh, that is people maybe who we think haven't made up their minds on questions like this. Well, we have to keep talking because the alternative to yeah. discourse Shooting. is violence. Yeah. There's no middle ground. Right. You're either trying to engage through talk, and and if not, I mean, just we have stories after stories. There's been uh, yet another incident at, at Berkeley of, of violence directed at a conservative who was trying to uh, petition and, and stand out for um, for building the wall, and, and a guy came up and just feels t- entitled to punch the person in the face, a representative from Turning that. Point USA. So that. this is this is happening. You know, we have enjoyed civil peace and freedom from tribal anarchy for all of our history, but I don't think we can assume that we can continue fueling these flames of, of tribal hatred and and not not see violence that is typical in many other parts of the, of the world. Thank you, Heather. Thank you very much, as always. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. It's time to jump in with Michael Anton. Uh, He's a former senior national security official in the Trump administration. At present, he's a writer and lecturer at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center. And we're delighted to have him back again after the Flight 93 election, the vote that saved America and what we still have to lose. That's the little book you want to buy. We uh, associate, many of us, um, uh, Michael, with the, I think, the best essay written about the election. uh, And that was the Flight 93 election that Michael wrote in. Was it September uh, early yeah. September of 2016, right? Labor Day. It came out on Labor Day. Good. Well, it certainly traveled. Uh, I know I passed it around a lot, and a lot of other people did. Let's. Uh, you talked about it being the Flight 93 election. That's an analogy to the Flight 93, uh, and uh, stakes that high, that important. That election was won by the guy you wanted to win, Donald Trump. Yes. Uh, how's he doing? We're about halfway. Uh, has he saved America? No, but I mean, I don't, let's not hold that against him. And that's a Herculean task. It's yeah. not going to be accomplished in two years. Uh, but also the level of opposition that he's faced 
is unlike anything I've ever seen uh, in politics. So he's, he's got he's fighting on all fronts imaginable. So he has to fight his left wing and Democratic political enemies, of course. He has to fight a constant insurgency within his own party. He has to fight a divided conservative movement, which so many of its luminaries and leading lights uh, insist that he is an illegitimate president. And now, I mean, look at the recent revelations that are coming out where these former senior officials at the FBI, the Department of Justice and so on, are boasting about their attempts to, in my view, illegitimately remove him from office. I don't think that's ever happened in the history of our allegedly constitutional republic, has it? I, you tell me, Bill, if no. I missed no. an occasion. Um, you know, I, I was a history major in college, so I thought I knew this stuff reasonably well. Yeah, no. uh, and, you know, it's very, very difficult to – I mean, look, the whole Russia story we now know, I, I, I knew it all along. It was just phony. There was nothing to it. Nothing to it. And, and the Democrats, you know, they can point these things well. Paul Manafort lobbying Ukraine, this, this. Okay, fine. I, you know, I, I, I don't have any doubt that lobbyists and, and people do sleazy things and stuff like that. But the, remember, the whole purpose of that investigation was to show that Trump colluded with the Russians and that Russian interference is the, was the decisive factor in his winning the 2016 election. Those are both preposterous charges for which no one has come up with any evidence at all. And yet the media has been blasting it in our faces 24-7 for two and a half years. And, I, I, you know, the whole story was a put up to delegitimize him. To some extent, it's worked. It's certainly handicapped his yep. administration. It's taken up in a massive amount of time, uh, of, uh, you know, of government time and so on. So I just I, I think to the look, I'm, I'm disappointed in that. I would like to have seen this administration accomplish more than it has by now. I bet the president feels the same way. Um, but let's be honest here. Why, you know, when we ask ourselves, why hasn't it? It's because uh, essentially Washington and all our elites won't let it. Won't let yeah, it. it's interesting. A uh, couple thoughts as you were talking. It has to. It, do, it doesn't seem to have affected his, you know, his work day and his workload and his agenda. No. But it has to. I mean, it has to sap. It has to. I mean, energy. look. Think about how hard it is to get. I mean, Paul Light, a scholar at the Brookings Institution, sort of has been focusing for years on how difficult it is to turn over an administration and staff up. And he says it gets difficult with every new administration. So yeah, Obama yeah, was harder yeah. than Bush, which was harder than Clinton, and so on. And I, I've read Light's work. I agree with that. But even by that standard, this has been the most extraordinarily difficult administration to staff up in history. And, uh, you know, if. If it always gets a little worse from one to the next, we had a catastrophic fall off from Obama to Trump. And that's because of just massive – there's a lot of reasons – but massive, massive opposition over trivial things to everybody the president can think of trying to nominate. All right, and I, so we're two years in, and I don't know how many posts are unfilled, but it's certainly we've ne no administration has ever been in this position before. A ton. I know that. Uh, I talked to a lot of the cabinet members. I know that. Uh, who call me about, you know, possible candidates and so on. And sometimes difficulty in finding ca uh, candidates, and sometimes you get the candidates, they'll wait forever uh, you yeah. know, for, for a confirmation. But uh, but something else, something else you said I, I wanted to pick up on, which is the Russia collusion. You said, you know, and I knew from the beginning, or maybe not from the beginning, but you knew this was – this was a, this was a fraud. I just read this morning, maybe it was uh, or yesterday. Uh, I think it was uh, Kimberly Strassel in the journal saying, "Well, now it now it's shifting," or as a friend of mine says, "shifting." Uh, I guess Adam Schiff. <laughs> so it's not the Russia collusion; it's the it's the finances 
Um, and and this is the prediction that the Russia thing, the Mueller report, will not be much, will not have much in the way of teeth. And so, but the narrative must go on. The narrative that he's illegitimate must go on, so you change your ground. Is that what you expect we'll see? I, well, sure. I mean, the narrative has to go on in order to hammer home their insistence that the president is illegitimate. But it's also a, a, a bit of CYA on behalf of a media industrial complex that's okay. been promising okay. for two and a half years. There's this big smoking gun. When it's revealed, it'll be clear to everyone and undeniable that the president is illegitimate, that he was in league with Russia. It'll be the biggest story of all time. He'll get impeached or he'll have to resign and we can go back to normal. Right. Well, clearly, it doesn't seem like that promise is going to be delivered. Uh, but, you know, just like in the Jesse Smollett case, when the media rushed to judgment, when the facts completely turn around on them, they don't say, wow, we got it wrong. We need to be introspective and wonder how we could be so so bad and maybe try to fix ourselves. They say, well, this is sort of sad, but the real tragedy, you know, is all the no. genuine hate crime victims will suffer from this. There's yeah. no introspection. There's yeah. no apology. Yeah. There's no attempt to get it better. They just want to change the subject uh, to avoid any kind of reckoning for their own failures. Yeah, the, 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 I watched last night. I don't mean to laugh about this, but um, reaction of uh, one of the Democrats running for Senate to the Jesse Smollett thing. He said it just underscores the need for passing this anti-lynching bill. What? Yeah. Talk, right. about, talk about a nonsense. The New York Times yesterday, in order to deflect attention, published yet another massively long exploration of the Emmett Till case, which, if I remember correctly, happened in either 1954 or 1955. I think it was 1955. Yes. So, I mean, you know, when was the last, I don't even know, when, when was the last, like, human being actually lynched in the South? I actually don't know the answer, yeah. but I don't think it was particularly recently, right? So... It's, you're, you know, you're far more likely – these hoaxes outnumber the genuine cases of, of hate crimes by a, a lot, it seems. Now, I know one, one of the things – one of the talking points that's going around now is they'll say, no, we have evidence that hate crimes are up. Well, Robbie Suave – I actually don't know how to pronounce his name, but he's, done, he's at Reason – has done really good work on yeah. this, showing that actually the entirety of the alleged increase is just from different ways of counting, right? If you, you know, yes, uh, so, yes, yes. But, you know, change the narrative. Change, and, and the other thing, too. Change sort of, the narrative. Sort of Don't change the narrative. Keep maintain the narrative. Change the subject. Yeah, that's true. Maintain, maintain the narrative, but just change the subject when the facts don't don't bear out. Another thing, too, is I noticed yesterday, I think this was this hasn't gotten a lot of attention yet, but it could be big. But both Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren came out for reparations for slavery. That, you know, has is that that's an idea that goes a long way back, kicked around for a while, went away. And was resurrected by that long Coates article in The Atlantic, I want to say in 2014, it might have been 2012. But it's a very fringy political idea. Now we have two leading candidates for president on the Democratic side running on this. Um, unless, unless I'm much more out of touch than I think I am, I bet that will be a very unpopular idea, broadly speaking. Yeah. And will backfire with the swing voters that a Democrat candidate needs to win in the upper Midwest and the Rust Belt and so on. So one thing I think we can we can judge the competency of the Trump campaign is do they seize on this and use it to their advantage or do they not? Uh, if I were them, I would definitely pick this up because that you know that's a, look that's a, that's an idea that's terrible policy, it's terrible philosophically, but politically it's just I just don't think it it helps the Democrats. Right. So I want to I want to just wanted to pick up on one thing you said when you mentioned Emmett Till. I don't I'm not expert on this, but I did go back to the Scottsboro Boys. During yeah. the time of the Kavanaugh confirmation, do you know why? 
because no. the Scottsboro boys were convicted on the testimony of a white woman who, oh, said, okay. who said they had raped her. And I remember right. one of the things being said at the time is always believe the woman. Right. Well, they believed the woman and hung these guys. And um, she recanted, you know, many years right. later when it was too late. Anyway, just a historical point. I kept trying to bring it up during that time and I couldn't I couldn't get any couldn't get anybody to pay attention. But anyway, that was a that was a point. I want to come back to a couple of things because rereading your 93 flight 93 essay and then the follow up. Um, one of the things you say, and I just would like you to, to, to just comment in a couple of sentences, remind this audience when you talk about liberals, um, hold the commanding heights. I think that was your phrase in almost yeah. all the most important institutions, financial, educational, administrative, and so on. Yes. Right. I, I mean, they just do. Media. I don't have any doubt about that, I, and I still believe it's true. I think their I think their grip on these institutions is stronger today than it was when I wrote that. The only exception being the White House, right. which, as I pointed out, isn't the White House isn't able to function as a White House normally should because the in in, in effect, there, there, it's almost like there's a there's a kind of a strike, an undeclared or or half declared strike going on where people say, well, I'm just not going to play the role that I'm supposed to play in this government or in this society. Um, I'm either going to slow roll the president or, you know, and this goes well beyond just direct opposition, you know, n- normal opposition where you vote down this or that nominee because you think they're unqualified or because they have something in their past where you just say, I don't care if this person is qualified or whatever. I, certainly they'll dig around and try to find something that they can hang their opposition on and say, oh, it's justified because of an unfiled tax return when he was, you know, 17 cutting lawns or something like that. But mostly there's sort of a frank admission that we're just not going to let the normal wheels machinery of government go on. We're right. not going to let you exercise your constitutional powers. All right. Pause, and, pause, pause there because I want to I hit yeah. two things before we have to let you go, which is I didn't realize um, – was it all in there when you wrote it originally? I just didn't recall it as much. The the um, the involvement of conservatives in their own demise here. Uh, that is yeah. the, well, the way the in which the 93 election essay is word for word what was published uh, uh, digitally in the Claremont Review of Books, okay. as is the restatement on Flight 93, which was okay. published eight days later. Okay, I've, the new material is all in the front. So there's a preface. There's a there's another little there's a note where I explain my pseudonym, which was much criticized. And then there's a substantial essay called the pre-statement on Flight 93, right. which is meant to be a philosophic treatment of what what are the what are the proper grounds of conservative principles. Now, right. I say philosophic, meaning I try to go into the philosophic grounds, but it's not a philosophy book in the sense that you can learn philosophy from this. If you really want to learn the underlying ideas, you got to go and read the big books sure. and the founding documents sure. and the notes on the Constitutional Convention and all of that stuff. But it is attempting to be a fairly short encapsulation and synthesis of but things t- that conservatism used to, I think, understand, but as far as I can tell – with few exceptions, doesn't anymore. All right, talk it's about like a little a, bit like about a refresher course. Talk about the complicity of conservatives in their own undoing, or their yeah. own their, uh, their own disappearance or slow disappearance. Well, uh, the, the, the most obvious um, the most obvious uh, point to make on that score is uh, immigration. Conservatives, okay. the Chamber of Commerce Republicans, and other you know sort of moralistic conservatives have been for de facto open borders and non-enforcement for years and years and years. And as they do so, um, you know, I, I, in the, the most compelling stat I saw after the midterm, you know, remember the midterm 2018, it kind of looked good for Trump the first couple days afterward, but then as more races closed out and, the, and, and, and you know, things shook out over the next two weeks or so, it looked worse and it looked better for the Democrats. And I saw 
a stat from uh, somebody who ran the numbers who said the single most determinative factor of whether a district, uh, state, county, whatever, voted Democratic is the percentage of foreign born. The higher it is, the more Democratic it is. And that was true everywhere in the country. Wow. The lower it was, the more Republican it is. So I've known this for a long time. I saw it happen up close and personal in my home state of California that went from reliably Republican in presidential elections and, and, you know, divided in the state house. The Democrats controlled the state house for a long time, but it was still Republican governors were routinely elected to a more kind of narrowly divided state to one that was tipping Democratic to one that was overwhelmingly now, now probably, you know, apart from Massachusetts, the most Democratic state in the nation. And all of that happened within 20 years. All right. You knew that for a long time. Don't we have to give credit to a guy I used to tangle with a lot? My fellow Gonzaga High School graduate, Pat Buchanan. He knew this, too, didn't he? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think he, 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 he certainly saw it before I did. Yeah. Um, I can remember being angry about Buchanan's 1992 run for the presidency. Yeah. In a way, yeah. I still am a little bit in that I think he helped George Bush lose, and George Bush deserved a second term, in my opinion, whatever my disagreements with him. Right. Uh, but certainly in hindsight, and you know, I, was, I was against Buchanan in the 96 uh, primary as well. Um, but in hindsight, I look back, and there are certainly a great many things that Buchanan got right before a lot of us I, I, well, I'll just speak only for myself before I figured it out. Yeah, no, me too. And me too. I feel like, um, you know, some of us, me included, maybe deserve, he owe him an apology. Yeah, no, I, well, I, t- I saw him the other day on a, on a panel and I said, Pat, you were right. I was wrong. And, um, yeah. you know, I, I don't, we don't get a whole lot of that these days. I was proud of myself, you know, but anyway, um, but uh, some good news as, as I read your as I read your book. Uh, and again, folks, get this book. Reread the essay, uh, the Flight 93 election, and reread the other material around it. The book is called After the Flight 93 election. A little good news. First of all, I think I, I read you as being uh, relieved, happy, maybe a little surprised at what you called the Flight 93 confirmation. Uh, that is yeah. uh, that uh, Republicans came together with Trump. People held shape, as George Eliot would say. Yes. I was. I, I was pleased by that and a bit surprised. Uh, I was especially pre- pleased and surprised that, you know, one of the heroes of the moment happened to be Lindsey Graham, who is not someone that I looked yeah. uh, for. Repub- I, I looked to for uh, exhibitions of Republican spine. Um, and, you know, lucky me, I happened to, because I've been doing a little TV, I happened to see him uh, at Fox on, on Capitol Hill shortly after that. And I was able to, just the two of us in the room, and I was able to shake his hand, tell him how inspiring I thought he was, yeah. and thank him for service to his country. I know. <laughs> I know, no, no, I know, and you know how bad uh, conservatives were after him in South Carolina in the primary. Uh, yeah. I, I've supported him. No, no, but that was, every, people held shape, and the Republican Party held shape. And yeah. and, and that was that was critical, obviously, to, to, to the success. Yeah. By the way, why is Amy Klobuchar a moderate? You know, she voted against him. She what? She seems moderate. Is that never mind? Uh, I I think she plays a moderate because look, if you I don't know if you read the Powerline blog, yeah, I do. But I re- I read it pretty regularly. Yeah, they're good. And two of the guys are based in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and they follow Minnesota politics very closely. And like the upper Midwest, there's a sort of sense. Now, Minnesota's, you know, traditionally been a very liberal state. The roots, you know, maybe are complex, but some of it has to do with this large Scandinavian population. And, you know, Scandinavians like welfare states. And Minnesota has had a pretty robust welfare state. It's got that, um, what's it called, the Democrat Farm Labor Party, which is, I think, that it's called, which is, you know, well off to the left of even the Democratic Party. And, but the state has been trending purple 
It's getting, it seems to be getting more conservative, more competitive for Republicans. And so John Hinderocker and Scott Johnson, you know, point out that Klobuchar knows she's a very talented politician. She knows that. And she knows that to stay viable statewide, she has to find a way to satisfy the DFL constituency in the primaries, but also not alienate, uh, you know, a, a broader statewide electorate that's trending, if not red, at least toward the purple. Uh, and they say she's good at that. I, you know, in a way, I mean, it's just the same. It's just the same pose that Bill Clinton successfully was able to pull off to win two terms okay. uh, in the White House. Okay, now uh, do just enough to placate the the far left and tack toward the problem that she's going to have. Of course, is that it seems to me obvious that the Democratic primary electorate for 2020 is way way off to the left. And I no want to talk about that. The amount end. of centrist hold, posturing will placate them. In fact, it'll just in, hold, enrage them. Hold that. I want to get to that at the end. Because I want to yeah. uh, let me interrupt you to praise you as I reread the flight 93 boy bingo 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 you talked about uh, Donald Trump in terms of the economy taxes trade uh, getting us out of unnecessary wars um, you just uh, immigration I mean you just you just ticked it off uh, and and he I, I will tell you because it's a point of pride for me I, I, I said the other night on TV this is a funny story uh, are you married yeah. Okay. Well, this is a marriage story. I've been married 37 years. I, I was on the show and, and I said, well, you know, like him or not. And I was with somebody who didn't like him very much. I said, you got to admit, this guy's kept more promises than any president in modern history. When I got off the show, my wife said, well, that was okay. It was, you know, you weren't really quotable. I said, I thought I was pretty quotable. Anyway, the president <laughs> tweeted my quote. <laughs> I said, thanks, Bill Bennett. So I said, honey, I was only quoted by one guy, but it was a good guy, you know? Okay. But I mean, apart from me, uh, you got it right ahead of time. He has kept promises, has he not? Yes. he has. I mean, he has kept the promises that he's been allowed to keep. Able to not keep. Been successfully blocked right. from keeping. Right. Um, I think he would have kept them all. I don't think, I don't, first, you know, one thing that I can be, I, I want to make totally clear He's not a conventional politician in the sense of getting up there and deliberately breaking promises out of cynicism or for political utility. I think, <laughs> I think the extent line. The, the, Use the that extent in your he's not yeah. been able to keep promises has just been because of this massive, yeah, unprecedented, and skullduggerous opposition that won't let him. No, it's, it's, it's really quite amazing. All right, let's close with this, because you just mentioned uh, 2020 and they're, they're, you know, them's going to the left. On the other hand, uh, I just read an essay – Pointing out, reminding me that if you add up the the vote difference uh, for Trump in Wisconsin, Michigan, and yeah, uh, you know, Pennsylvania is it, it's like eighty or ninety thousand people. So yeah. if you go, you're a Democrat and you go visit there, you know, you'll get a few more votes. Second, the demographics increasingly change. What you were just talking about, the study that you know the demographics. Plus, these millennials are acting like illegals. Terms of their voting, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and uh, I, that's my problem. That's you know, that's former Secretary of Education. I'll take responsibility for that. Uh, although you know, I was I was opposed. <laughs> I mean, I tried to do too. But that aside, there are some serious odds against him and the demographics. But you think the philosophy and the and the move left uh, should encourage him? I mean, do you think? I are think you so, optimistic? I think gonna, several factors are going to be kind of sure, tugging at each other. And we'll, well, you know, I make no predictions, but on the one hand, you know, the demographics um, tip against Republicans with every cycle. So and more so and more so each time and more so right. each time. The demographics of 2020 will be more challenging than 2016. So right. There, that's a, right. That, that's right. a, you know, a strike against Trump or a, a hurdle he has to overcome. Strike one. Um, 
Uh, on the other hand, Trump will have the advantages of incumbency. So that's a big plus in his favor. Um, uh, but another, on the other, other hand, the Democrats, you know, there's a, there's a, a lot of campaign reporting about how Hillary and her team too much took for granted the upper Midwest where Trump campaigned hard there. Well, they're not going to make that mistake again. Right. So you can expect whoever the Democratic nominee is to spend a lot of time in Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and really, really put in the, the work. They're not going to they're not going to make an unforced error there. Um, so that, that that's, you know, maybe strike two against against Trump. Um on the other, 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 other hand, just like I think, you know, one of the things that that played well for Trump uh, beyond his, I, I listed this as core agenda, you know, immigration, trade, and war. Uh, I didn't say in that piece, but it was actually a pretty big theme for him. It was just basic order and protection. The government is here to provide, you know, it's here to secure your life, liberty, and your pursuit of happiness, your safety and happiness. Yeah, safety and, and happiness, Aristotle, right, right. And and it's it, it, that was clear in 2016 when Black Lives Matter was really going strong and Democratic politicians went out of their way to excuse violence, and riots and things like that, uh, culminating. I think the, the worst was the Dallas shooting um, where, yeah. a, a, you know, a, a, essentially a domestic terrorist um, killed. I forgot how many shot and killed. I yeah. forgot how many Dallas cops. Yeah. And Hillary Clinton's reaction to that was something along the lines of, you know, we need to have more healing conversations about race. Or, yeah. you know, we need to wake yeah. people yeah. up to the, yeah. and n- not a condemnation of violence, not a call for calm and all of that, but, you know, very left wing rhetoric because she didn't want to alienate, I guess, you know, black voters and left wing voters. Although it remain, you know, I'm, I'm sort of mystified as to why black voters who are disproportionately the victims of violence would be in favor of violence. So obviously that didn't work for her. So if the Democratic Party, um, which it inexorably will be pulled in a left-wing radical direction by by the most enthusiastic parts of its base, if the Democratic nominee cannot find a way to, if not resist that tug, at least go only so far in that direction and throw enough rhetoric or faints back in the moderate to centrist direction, then that'll be a huge advantage for Trump because he can just run against whoever it is as an extreme radical who's going to turn off a ton of people. So, you know, I kind of, in a way, while I fear a President Harris more than any other, um, I think nominee Harris running on reparations or something like that could be actually quite useful to Trump. Yeah. Did you see uh, Kamala Harris's father's comment? Yes, I actually yeah. only saw it this morning. Yeah, I know um, something. It was crazy. Also, though, here, here to me, my my favorite Kamala Harris moment so far is when, you know, she tweets just uh, just takes for granted that the Jesse Smollett uh, hoax is real before we have any information. It, the story obviously looks preposterous. As soon as I heard it, I thought, well, I'm you know I have to wait and see, but. 99% this is going to turn out to be a hoax. It's just too ridiculous to be true. Sure. She takes it for granted, endorses it wholeheartedly, and when it's finally unraveled, she's at a campaign stop in New Hampshire. This maybe happened two days ago, three days ago. And with the microphone right on, a reporter asks her, hey, have you, you know, what do you have to say now that the hoax has been revealed for what it is? And her eyes just bug out, and she doesn't know what to say. Doesn't know what to she's say. totally taken right. off guard. Exactly. She, lo- she sort of turns one way and then the other way, looking at AIDS with this plaintive look that says, help me, how do I get out of this? And then says, well, you know, all the facts aren't in, and all of, you know, when I have all the facts, uh, but it certainly is troubling or something like that. Um, she yeah. seems prone to those kinds of gaffes where she gets way too far out ahead of herself and then, you know, doesn't know how to roll it back. You know, when she said at a, yes. she said at a town hall, 
um, let's just yeah, get right. rid of all private right. insurance. Well, apparently that wasn't a thought through policy position. That was just a scripted, unscripted thing that she said. Quite radical, far yeah, radical, yeah, more yeah. radical than anything Obama talked about on the 2008 campaign. And, you know, that you know, those kinds of gaffes will be gifts that keep on giving if she is the nominee. Yeah, no, I, a certain casualness and enthusiasm uh, in, in, in her comments. I, you know what? The first thing I heard, I'm the only person who heard it this way. When uh, she talked about her pot stuff, and, you know, I'm, I'm not a pot guy at all. I think this is just crazy what we're doing. But when she said, you know, when the interviewer said to her in the famous interview, you know, what, have you smoked? Yes. She said, I inhaled. And you're in favor of it. She said, hey, I'm half Jamaican. So her father right. blasted her on this, as you and I have. Uh, yeah, I read, the, I read her father's comment this but, morning. I, I hadn't seen that until this morning. But supposing uh, someone had raised the question of Jamaica to Donald Trump, and he said, oh, you mean all those pot smoking? Oh, yeah, it would be a na- it would be, you know, <laughs> no. yeah, of course. it would I mean, be it would right, be the asshole. I know we should again. all be so used to this double standard that we yeah. just take it for granted. I guess what I still manage to get annoyed at is to have some liberal deny it to my face. I just that level of gaslighting, I find profoundly irritating, but they still do it. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, they'll, they'll say something to your face and then deny that they said it two seconds later. I know. I know. The, the shamelessness, the brazenness of it is, is, is galling. I think I said something like that in the restatement on Flight 90. I did. So in the restatement on Flight 93, I make the point that one of the criticisms people had was, you know, oh, Donald Trump, you know, all, all these liberals were starting to come out and speak for constitutional principle and how Donald Trump would undermine constitutional principle. And I said, really? You mean this is the same left wing that, that arose with the progressive party? Uh, in the late 19th century with an explicit criticism that the Constitution was outmoded, um, didn't fit our times, had to be uh, scrapped or gotten around. And now you guys are lecturing us about some pretend departure from the Constitution and blaming us, the Constitution that you've always hated and always tried to undermine and get under or around. That's just gaslighting on a level so (laughs) shameless, I I can't take it. What does gaslighting mean? I don't know what it means. Okay, gaslighting, uh, the phrase is from a movie, I think in the 40, early 40s, an Ingrid Bergman movie. Oh, Ingrid where, Bergman. Yeah, okay. I know the movie. Where her husband, I forgot who played her husband, but he basically tricks her into believing she's insane. Oh, by okay. Li- little subtleties over the time. Like it, okay. she knows, she sees what's going on, and then he denies everything that she sees and he tries to make her think that she's crazy. Right. That's what the left essentially does to us. They. They, they deny reality and say, you know, what you it. are seeing, Bill, Mike, what you have seen us do and say, we've never said or done. I got it. And so it's your own fevered imagination that's imagining this when we know we've seen it with our own eyes. Yeah. Another, a phrase, another phrase that I like, I got this from uh, Rod Dreher, which is sort of similar. He calls it the law of merited uh, impossibility. This is a left-wing rhetorical tactic when they say something like, uh, oh, that will never happen. And the, that could be anything from, you know, reparations or some kind of punishment or whatever. That will never happen. And when it does, you boy, will you deserve it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that is a perfect encapsulation <laughs> right. of a certain strand of left-wing rhetoric. You're crazy to worry about this particular thing. And yet when it, find, when it happens to you, man, do you deserve it. Do you um... – I'm just curious, a survey of a lot of my guests. You are a, uh, it's a brilliant book um, after the uh, after the Flight 93 election, Michael Anton. You're a brilliant guy. Do you get a lot of invitations to speak at universities and debates with people of another? I wouldn't say a lot. I, I, I'm probably a out on the road giving a talk somewhere 
about once a month. Other than uh, Grove City or Hillsdale, I've been invited to other. I've been invited to some other campuses, and I've been invited various places by think tanks and to go to conferences. It's not a tidal wave, but it, you know, there's, I get a few. See, I, my whole question is to it, dialogue, and do we actually believe in it? You know that you can. No, I don't think, I we, don't do. think we do. I, I mean, I, a friend of mine came up with a very pithy phrase that I have taken to heart. Sadly, uh, just three words: discourse is over. Yeah, we're not talking to we're not talking to one another across a political ideological spectrum anymore, and which is why I, I spend, you know, to the extent that I'm engaging in rhetoric and trying to convince people of anything, um, I spend most of it trying to just convince and or fortify my own side. Okay. And I'm sure someone will criticize me and attack me for that. Aha, he's admitted he's not even trying. Well, that's true, because I, there's no point. There's, no, there's nothing I could say to anybody I, yeah, on, yeah. on the left-wing side of the debate, uh, or so, even on the never-Trump, the anti-Trump, yeah, okay. quote-unquote, conservative side of the debate, that they're going to believe and accept. So my book has already, for instance, been attacked by so-called conservatives, who obviously, whether they read it or not, I don't know. They didn't make any substantive points. But it's amazing to me when I see so-called conservatives and so-called, you know, Straussian political philosophy professors or people trained in that school where I'm giving a statement of ancient and classic natural right and what it means. And they're going after that. So, is, you know, is conservatism going to criticize uh, a, a simple summary of Aristotle's politics oh, no, and, and no. ethics? Just because Mike Anton wrote it and Mike Anton voted for Trump, if that's where we are, then discourse truly is over. And I, I just I don't know what I could say to these people that uh, that would bear any fruit. So I just don't waste any time on them. It's sad. It's sad. My wife has a, a friend from you know college days, and you know that's a few years ago. I won't say how many, but a few. She's very liberal. She's very anti-Trump. My wife, who's got a dear heart and a great mind, but continues to believe in dialogue, and will say, I'm sure she'll say in the next day or two. I'm going to send leave her name out of it. This stuff on 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 Jesse Smollett. This will change your mind. Yeah. And I so I say, honey, you know, <laughs> no, no, it won't. And I, you know, and it yeah. kills me. I'm, I was trained. I got a PhD in philosophy. I believe in the Socratic conditions of dialogue that we enter dialogue, you know, with some measure of intelligence, one hopes, with candor and with goodwill, that we will follow the argument where it leads and come to the conclusion that the evidence uh, points to. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. Well, look, I, I do believe um, these uh, these things are cyclical. I'm not sure if I believe that because it's true or if I believe it because it's consoling. Yeah. But at least I think I believe okay. it because it's yeah. true. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in a bad place in terms of intellectual discourse, intellectual honesty, you know, political dialogue, and so on. It doesn't mean we'll always be in that place. You know, things could rise things again. Get better. Certainly if you compare our time to the level of reason – discourse of the American founding and setting up the regime, we really look uh, pale and puny by comparison. But let's remember, too, that 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 wasn't a normal circumstance. I mean, those were world historical giants that don't appear very often on the face of the earth. So we can't. We need It's one thing to measure ourselves against them, but it would be a mistake to always compare your time and think that time should always be like that. It's not going to be. Um, but Speaking of civilization which, somehow will will it will recover, and if it doesn't recover, then a new one will just have to be born and rise again. But it, you know, the human race won't be in, in permanent decline. My fear, though, is that it might be in decline for a pretty time. long time. Let me well I, I on, on that point. Two last things, and I'll let you go. We've run over, but these things are gnawing at me. One, uh, back to the founding. Uh, I swear, somewhere I read and wrote down that John Adams, in a letter or somewhere, said. Um, and writing to Madison or somebody, um, 
Oh, I think will last. I think will go at least 150 years. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Or the, or the notion of the founders that, you know, this was an experiment. They knew it was risky, but they didn't think, you know, that would necessarily go very long. I, I'm not – I should look for okay. that or, okay. I, you know, ask some of my Claremont buddies. Yeah, if they, Tom Meister. If, they, if they yeah. know of it. I hadn't heard of that. When I wrote – so recently – well, I guess close to a year ago now, I wrote a very long review essay of Tom West's book on the founding. Yeah. And published it in the New Criterion, and one of my grad school friends read that review and said, okay, basic question is, if your contention, which I want to agree with, is that the founders got it right and they built a regime on true principles, how did it come apart so fast and, and you know, in ways that the founders would find repugnant? So one of the things I – and if I wrote him a very long reply that the New Criterion also published – and I said, well, I, you know, what is fast? I, I actually don't yeah, know no, what the you. definition of success was. They, they might be made you. in 240 years. I'm with you. I'm with you. Right? We told a waitress the other day, she said, how long have you two been married? I said, 37 years. She said, oh, that's impossible. I said, no, 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 no. It, it actually ha- – no, I'm de- if it's 150 years, I'm delighted, though. It's now longer for this republic. But, yeah. I mean, their expectations of human nature were not uh, great, Right. Right. Well, look, you know, Lincoln liked to tell a story about an ancient sage. I think I think this actually existed. I just can't remember who the ancient king was. So some ancient king or despot or whatever asks the wisest man in, in wisest men in his kingdom, come back to me with a saying that, you know, will stand for all time and that will always be true that I can carve in stone. Yes. And they came back with this, which the king was satisfied with. Right? And this, too, shall pass, pass away. Right. right? So the founders knew that the United States would not be perpetual because they knew that no regime, no country, nothing human will ever be perpetual. Uh, But it is an open question for me is how long did they think was realistic? Me too. Um, I made this point and, you know, I'm working on a a, a major scholarly study of Montesquieu, Montesquieu's book Mm -hmm. on the Romans. Mm -hmm. Romans lasted a very long time, but in a completely different technological environment. And there is there is to me, I think, a vast extent to which technology and prosperity, information technology, things like that, speed up the cycle, right? So, you know, if the Roman Republic lasted several hundred years, I think we could say, what is it, 509 BC would be the founding in the fall would be Caesar becoming dictator. So let's say 450 years, right? Maybe in modern circumstances, half that isn't so bad. You know, it's actually pretty good. What about the immediate future? Uh, Because I want to end where we started and I want to tell you about a conversation in which uh, your essay, Flight 93, the original essay, came up. I was talking to Gary Bauer. You remember Gary Bauer? He ran for president. Yeah. He was my undersecretary when I was secretary of education. Yeah. And we were uh, we were having a conversation, and I said, president's doing great, right? And he said, yeah. He said, you know, but um, you remember that Flight 93 essay? I said, oh, I sure do. And he said, even if he's doing great, this is just a temporary reprieve, isn't it? I didn't know what to say. I definitely harbor that fear. I do my very best to be optimistic, yeah. both for you know reasons of personal psychology and also for the institution that I represent. Um, that is that is my fear. Uh, but also, you know, you also you have to ask yourself. Everything could go, you know, could go back to quote unquote normal. Trump could lose in 2020, or he could be he could win, but still not get nearly enough accomplished because of all of the internal and external opposition and then lose in 20, you know, and then a Republican loses in 2024 and it's president Harris or some other left winger. And we go back to the conditions 
that we were in in 2016, but worse and spiraling down. Yeah. That's, that could very well happen. But we yeah. should remember, right? If what you and I learned studying philosophy is true, then there is nature. There is a human nature. There's political nature. And it means that the grandest schemes of what the left wants to do are just not possible. They yeah. will bump up against natural limits. They will fail. They will crack. And they will probably prompt uh, uh, you know, a, a, a rejection by human beings at some point who say, okay, enough. You've had your chance. This isn't working. My life continues to get worse. I, you know, we can't count on the fact that people, which I think the left does count on, that people will sort of be docile and sit still for the rule that they want to oppose on them forever. Now, this, it, it might not be a pleasant reaction, but I, I, I think that we have to think that, the, you know, chances are some kind of reaction will come right. if there okay. is nature. If there isn't nature, then everything you and I learned and a lot of other people, a lot of our friends learned is wrong anyway. Then we might as well have been liberals this whole time. <laughs> I don't think that's true. All right, time to end this conversation. I agree with you yeah. about mental health and optimism. I say to people, they say, are you optimistic or pessimistic? I said, I'm with yeah. Isaiah. I'm a theoretical pessimist. Isaiah yeah. in the old time, I believe it's all wind and ashes. But when it comes yeah. to getting up in the morning, how can I how can I move the ball today? You know, what can I do today? Remember Irving yep. Crystal used to talk about the Russian general shaving in the morning saying, how can we destroy them today? You know, and <laughs> and, you know, how, how do we move the ball? You move the ball, well, Michael. Me, since you mentioned since you mentioned Irving Crystal, I, I want to just bring up I, I've heard this story from a number of sources, perhaps apocryphal, but it stuck with me. Uh, allegedly. Uh, Robert Bork once said to Irving Crystal, you realize, of course, that our civilization is dying. And Crystal replied, yes, but it's possible to live well in the meantime. Yes. Um, it sounds like Irving. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so that would have had to have been said, you know, 20 years ago. How about this Irving Crystal story? I talked to Norman Podhoretz early in my career, the former editor of Commentary, and I was making a career choice. And he said, talk to Irving. He's very good on this, particularly advising young people. So I talked to Irving and I got his advice and he said, yeah, I, I do this. I said, okay, good. I think you've convinced me. And then he paused and said, now I should tell you, I almost always give the wrong advice. So you may want to do the opposite. So it was the old uh, Cretan liar, right? I mean, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. there are a lot of those stories and uh, we miss Irving. And my friend Bill, I don't know, gee whiz, he was my chief of staff, you know. And, uh, yeah, oh, that's, I knew that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, just like, you know, I just, it breaks my heart. It just breaks my heart to watch him on CNN. Just can't never Trump or stuff. It just, I, Johnny, I hardly knew you, you know? Yeah. I mean, the never Trump thing is one thing. I, 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 I don't begrudge anybody with within reason their political opinions or who they vote for. I'm, I'm, I'm a complete believer in freedom of conscience. Sure, but sure. He's gotten, he's gotten so very personally nasty yeah. towards so many of his former friends that, to me, that's the saddest part, is just to watch the kind of descent into pettiness and meanness, whatever your political opinions are. It's, Do you know? Uh, I find it un unpleasant to yeah. watch, which is why I mostly don't watch. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Bye. the book, folks, after the Flight 93 election. Get it. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. That does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. All right, now, now, Claude, help me through this, as you do every week. You okay. can follow me on Twitter, yes. William J. Bennett, because I tweet, right? Yes, you do. Sometimes I don't even know that I have. Correct. And you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Free. Feel free. Please email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. be a good thing to do. Yes. Okay. Okay. 